Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. I'm excited to get into this message with you. It's entitled, Overflowing with Grace. Everybody say, Overflowing. Overflowing Overflowing with Grace. Um, When I was pondering this message over this last week, and I was thinking about everything that we're in the midst of as a family with the weddings and all that kind of stuff. And I thought to myself how this message really, if, if you're making a movie about the, the, the uh, story of my wife, you could call it Overflowing with Grace. Because living with me for the last 28 years has required... Oh, James Crocker just texted me. He's obviously finished preaching at the... Uh, <laughs> At Highland Park. Thanks, James. Appreciate that. Uh, so my, last time I preached here, he was texting me all the way through the message. It was, it was incredible. He was giving me all kinds of tips as I went along. Uh, it's fantastic. But as I was, I was thinking about it, man, it, it, it requires a lot of grace to make marriage work. Who are all the, all the married people in this room? Let me, let me see your hands. You know what I'm talking about. Grace for one another, grace to, to walk in unity together, especially over the long term. For the last 28 years, um, my wife has put up with me and I have endured nothing um, but goodness and, and glad tidings. Amen. So on the eve of my son getting married, I thought, given that the title of the message was Overcoming with Grace, I would spend a little bit of time here just giving you some marriage tips to help you to kind of on your way. So all the, all the single people, put your hand up. Okay, look around. Yeah, okay, that's, that's, that's what you got to work with. All right. Um, if you're single here today, most of, most of us want to be married. So this is, this is going to help you as well, all right? All right. So in marriage, there's, I, I think there's three distinct phases of marriage. The first one is the what's in it for me phase. The what's in it for me. I mean, obviously when you're looking for a permanent life partner, you want to have yourself in mind at some level, right? Like there needs to be something in it for you. And I don't know about you, but uh, I think most people are good at kind of writing the list of things that are important to them in a life partner. I think it's a good idea. I think it's also a good idea not just to spend your whole time just putting everyone up against that list, but rather asking yourself, if that's the person that I want to be with, what is that person looking for? And then become that person. So I think often we're good at identifying the things that we want in the person, but we don't ask ourselves the question, what does that person want? Because just as there is something, you're looking for there to be something in it for you, they're also wanting there to be something in it for them, all right? So, so it's very natural, you know, there, 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 that we have kind of a self-motivation. We, at the beginning, it's kind of, it is a little me-centric, if I'm perfectly honest. Our desire is that we want to be with somebody that gets us, right? Do they kind of get me? But then beyond that, we move into, I think, the second phase of marriage, and that is the what's in it for us. So there's the what's in it for me, and then there's the what's in it for us. This is where we begin to partner together with our spouse to define and design the life that we want to live, right? This This is where we we're joining together with our, our gifts and we're strategizing about, okay, what is the life that we want to live? What is, what is this life that we're going to create together? This is where we learn that we, that we are in the first phase of marriage. We can tend, to, can, can tend to have a little bit of conflict because we can often be focused on trying to make the other person think like we do. And that never goes well. Trust me. My counselor will tell you that that doesn't work out well. But in the second phase of marriage, rather than just being being able to identify the differences, what we learn to do in maturity is to celebrate the differences. 
to see the differences is actually something not that we need to change, but rather than we need to grab a hold of that makes us stronger together. That's where we begin to see ourselves not as competitors for attention, but complementary in our giftings. We celebrate the differences. It becomes less important for them to get me as it is for me to learn to get them, right? My orientation changes. But there is a third phase of marriage also, and that is, uh, so what we had, what's in it for me, what's in it for us? Number three, what's in it for them? And when I say them, I don't mean just those two of us that are within the context of that marriage relationship, but what is it, what is it that God has invested in us together that will benefit the world at large? Because I really believe that in every great marriage, there is something that God has invested that benefits the world. That it's not just about you, and it's not just about together, it's about the world. And that God wants to do something through you, that's when we discover in the third phase of our marriage, the the greater purpose that God has for us together on the earth. It's not just about us building our individual dreams, but it pushes us to see our lives as unique and capable of blessing others. Obviously, that begins in, in first within the nuclear family with, with our children. Your marriage should bless your children. If it doesn't, problem number one. Well, it's actually probably, num- probably, probably number 50, but... It's, it's going to make a difference. But that your, your relationship, your marriage should bless your children, should bless your friends. Should bless the, the friends around you should be, should, should be blessed by your marriage. Your marriage should bless your church. It should strengthen and unify your church community. And even on a larger scale than even a church community, it should bless the community at large. That your marriage should bless others. The thing is, is as we move through each of these phases, a couple of things can happen. Number one, we grow together. We get closer to one another as we move from the, from the me to the us to the them. Why? It's because we we have to grow in love. We grow in love toward one another and we grow in love toward the real world around us. The other thing that happens is we grow in unity together. We begin to see things the same way. Whereas when it was all about me, it was all about me getting you to see things my way. Then it became about us seeing things our way. But once we moved into the them, it became our ability to see how we can impact those around us. I found that the things that were important to my wife became, began, began to be important to me. Even though in the early stages of our relationship, I didn't really care about those things. <laughs> when I was a young man, early married, I didn't really care if the house was clean. I could care less. It really didn't, really didn't bother me either way. I mean, I liked it if it was, but if it wasn't, Ah, there's plenty of other things to do. Now, I'm a flipping clean fiend, man. I got used to things being clean, and now I'm all about it. There's some people that just can't be helped, Jerry. I'm sorry. Um, it's that old, old dog, new tricks thing. Um, but, <laughs> but the thing is, is that I, 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 I learned to love things that she loved. Things that are important to her. I, I couldn't understand why it was so important to her in the early days of her marriage to make the bed. When all we're going to be doing is getting back in there later on. So is it, why is this important? But now I know that it mattered to her. So then I disciplined myself to make the bed. And now if the bed's not made, even when my wife is away on a business trip, guess what I do? I make the bed. And then I take a photo of it and I send it to her. Thank you. That's what social media is for, fellas. Just helping you out here. 
words became my words. Her thoughts became my thoughts. We were able to complete each other's sentence. We're able to think along similar wavelengths. And even though we're two different people with two different sets of ideas and two unique personalities, when we are purposed together towards something, it's amazing the unity that you find yourselves in because you have a sense of direction. I found that we grew closer together. I found number two, that we became more and more energized the more we tapped into the they. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's nothing more exhausting than being self-centered. It's so exhausting just being all about you. But what I've discovered in time is that when you're all about other people, there's something that, is, that energizes you. It's like when you can be completely tapped out, just musing about your own situation, your own circumstances, your own funk. But when you purpose yourself to help other people, all of a sudden you've got a new level of energy. You can do so much more. Have you ever noticed that you have no wisdom for your own problems, but all kinds of wisdom for everybody else's? Come on. Like you've got so much to say and so much wisdom and you'll be sitting, I mean, I have literally sat there with people at times and be talking to them about their problems and I'm hearing what I'm saying, I'm thinking, I hope somebody's recording this because this is good. <laughs> like I literally need to hear what I'm saying for me. But in my own stupor, I can't find the wisdom. Is it, or is it just me? See, when I align myself together, we align ourselves with our purpose, we become energized. Number three, I found that as we become aligned in our purpose together, we become more focused. Because we're living every day with a sense of direction. There's nothing more confusing than options. Like many of us are so confused because we have too many options. Your life is like the Cheesecake Factory menu. <laughs> Who knows what I'm talking about? I just stopped going there, man, because I'm like, I don't need five pages. I mean, the wisdom in this house to have In-N-Out Burger here today. It's simple. You love it because you know what you're going to get. It's simple. You don't have to, you know, it's simple. But some of our lives are like flipping Cheesecake Factory menus where we're just sitting around with just way too many options and we can't, we're just confused all the time. What should I do? Then we blame God. What's his will? He doesn't give a crap what you eat. Like, he's, like he doesn't care less. Half the things that you're hoping God will tell you, he's like, that's on you, sucker. Like, I'm busy. He's your father after all. Take care of some stuff. Come on, grow up a little. But see, when we get focused, when we have a sense of purpose, when we have a sense of destiny together, all of a sudden, things become a lot clearer. We become energized. We become focused. See, as we grow in our marriage, we've got to move from the me to the we to the them. And what I've found is that marriages that tend to struggle are marriages that never get out of the me phase. Maybe they dip their toe into the we phase, but they definitely never get to the they. You see, it's, it's kind of silly to think, isn't it, that the thing that initially sparked a relationship or caused you to fall in love with somebody will be the same thing that will keep you staying with that person forever. Things change. Circumstances change. People change. I'm more than half the man that I was when Bree met me. Um, there and a half, I think, is actually the, inc- the correct math. One time plus a half. Things change. 
And I think often we can easily find ourselves grabbing onto and to the things that initially sparked something in our life. I call it, we build dams of desperation, that's what I call them where we're trying to store up the things about a person that we initially fell in love with and we, we dam it up and we, we're just holding onto it, thinking that it's a finite resource and then once that goes away, there's nothing else. But God isn't looking us to build, for us to build dams of desperation. He's looking for us to build riverbanks of relationships. He's looking for us to build these guiding uh, riverbanks in our lives, building relationships so that what God is pouring out into you and through your marriage and through you as an individual, He wants to pour back out through you. He doesn't want you building a dam. He wants you to build riverbanks of relationships. Riverbanks of relationships. He's looking for us to shift our perspective from a pie mentality to a river mentality. Who you are, who God is, what He is wanting to invest in you, He's wanting to pour out through you, not as a finite resource, a pie in which there's only so much to go around, but as a river in which as it pours out of you, it pours into you. And as it pours into you, it pours out of you. So many of us have a flawed perspective of who God is and how he works. And we see everything in, about who he is as a finite resource that we don't want to use up. But God isn't a finite God. There's nothing finite about him. He is infinite in every way. In every way. His love for you knows no bounds. He is the swamp of love. <laughs> Little messy at times, but it knows no boundaries and it infiltrates everywhere. But we often think about God and the way He interacts with us as just a pie. Like there's only so much to go around. There's only so much forgiveness to go around. And once I've tapped out of that, there's no more. There's only so much mercy to go around. And so once it's run out, I'm out of luck. There's only so much grace to go around. And once it's run out, there's no more. And I'm on my own. The thing I want you to know today is that the grace of God, His mercy, His love, and everything that fuels the person that God is, is unlimited. It knows no bounds. It never runs out. His grace is just merely an unlimited manifestation of His unlimited love. His grace toward you is, the Bible describes it as unmerited favor. That is, he looks upon you, not because what you have done, but because who you belong to. It's not who you are, it's whose you are. That's what matters. And so the grace of God over your life has no boundaries, it has no limits. It's unmerited favor. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 puts it this way, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. James reminds us in chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What that's trying to tell us is that there's nothing that you can do that can alter the way he sees you. There's nothing you can do to change God's mind about who you are. And that's in either direction. He's never going to think more of you, and he'll never think less of you. You can't, you can't disavow yourself. You can't unearn you can't do something that causes him, his eyes to not be toward you. It's unmerited in the first place. It was unmerited on the day Jesus died and it's unmerited today. And every day in between and for all eternity, 
until Jesus comes again. That is the unmerited favor of God on your life. There's nothing you can do to change his mind. He decided. He had a purpose. He executed a plan. And now the favor of God rests upon your life when you come to him in faith. By grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is the conduit in which the grace of God flows into your life. Faith is what you bring to the table. Grace is what Jesus has done. All right? So you bring faith and he pours out grace. Unmerited favor over your life. When the more you think about this topic of grace, the more you realize how amazing it is. My first point today for you is that grace is great. I don't just mean like grace is, it's great. <laughs> like how great is it? No, it is great in the unfathomable sense. In that you can't even describe how amazing it is. It's like you trying to describe to somebody how the Grand Canyon was made. Like you can kind of conceptualize it. Like, you know, it's erosion. But flipping whoop-de-doo. Like, like when you think about erosion, like you just think about like maybe like a, at best you might think about maybe a landslide on Malibu. You know when you drive along the PCH and you look at those houses on the hill and you just think to yourself, suckers, man, suckers. <laughs> Every single one of them, because it's only a matter of time before erosion has its way. At least that's how what I think. <laughs> that's between me thinking, I'd love to live there. But, um, but like that's like we can think, but then you look at the Grand Canyon and you go, erosion? Like really? Like that's a lot of water. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of, but that's what it is with the grace of God, it's, 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 you, you can kind of begin to conceive it. You kind of can explain it a little bit. But at the end of the day, you've got to buy into this idea that is overwhelmingly amazing. And you just got to stand on the rim of it every now and again and gaze at the beauty and just go, wow. Like we can talk about it. We can conceive it. But at the end of the day, you just got to, you just got to admire its splendor, don't you? You just have to go, flip, I don't really get it, but it's incredible. I'm going to enjoy this thing that God has done for me. Grace is unlimited because the love of God knows no limits. Ephesians in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, verse 14, it says this. For this reason I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, you might say unlimited grace, according to the riches of his glory, not, not your glory, his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, everybody say the church, it's the church that's who we're talking about. All the saints, the church. What is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That means you can't get it. You can't understand it. We can talk about it. We can, we can think about it. We can, we can ponder it. But at the end of the day, it's beyond our, even our understanding. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Not just some of it, not just a little bit of it, not just a taste of it, but all of it. All of the fullness of God, God wants to invest in you. What a deal. All of it. And how is that at all possible? It's because His grace knows no bounds. It's unlimited. His grace is great. Grace is unlimited because it has no boundaries. You know, we all love the story of the, of the prodigal son, but the thing that always just gets me about that story is that, God, that 
the, the father is the representation of God and the prodigal is the representation of us. Here's the thing, is that the, the father gave the son his inheritance even though he knew he was going to squander it. That's how much the father loved the son. That even though he knew he wasn't ready, and even though he knew that he wasn't going to do anything good with it, and even he knew that the chances were super duper high that this wasn't going to work out well for anybody, because it was his birthright, he gave it freely. That's why God sees you. When you come into a relationship with him, it doesn't matter how put together you may appear. It doesn't matter how, how good you, right, you have. There is an inheritance that God wants to invest in you. And after the fact, with the prodigal, even though he squandered the gift, even the, the inheritance, even though it all went away, you know what the father did? He didn't sit on his porch and go, well... When that kid comes back, I tell you, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. I'm going to show him what's up. No. The Bible says that every day, the father would walk as far as he could in half a day, stand on the highest point that he could find, and look as far as he could to see whether or not the son was returning today. And then he'd turn around and he'd come back, and then the next day he'd go back out again and he'd look again and he'd look again and he'd look again and he'd look again. The Bible says that when he saw the sun coming, he was already half a day's walk out and he saw the, the sun coming. What did he do? He didn't just stand there and wait. No, he ran even further. He kept going. God doesn't just wait for you to turn up. He's actively chasing after you, just looking for a glimpse, just a glimpse, just a just a, just a, a pitter-patter of some feet, just some dust in on the road. And he's running towards you. That's what's so incredible, what's so great about grace. It's not, God isn't passively just tossing you a gift and going, here you go, kids. Yeah, you weren't doing so well yourself, so here you go, check it out. No, he's actively pursuing you. It's not just a gift, it is a, it, it, it is a monumental thing that God has done for you and I. It's so great a, a gift that it's hard to believe that the grace that God went has gone so far out of his way. Now remember that the price of grace is the, was the greatest sacrifice of all. Like Jesus had to die for grace to abound. God had to sacrifice his very best for you to receive your inheritance. So God is all in already. He's already all in. The thing is, is that God in his infinite mercy and his wisdom didn't just say, here's your grace, it's good for you. He said, now that you have received my grace, I want you to be now a conduit of grace. That as grace has freely been received, now freely give, the Bible says. See, grace is way too great for one person to contain. Grace is too great for one person to contain. As we read in Ephesians 3, the context here of the love of God and the outpouring of his, of his height, his de the depth and breadth of his awesome love toward us is contextualized with all the saints, that is, his church. God is wanting to pour out his grace, not just upon the earth, but particularly through his church. Paul goes on in chapter 14, chapter 4, sorry, Ephesians 4, verse 1 to 7. I'm just going to read it out to you. It says, therefore, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul speaking, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Everyone say Grace. That's just, that's just another way to explain grace. 
eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. This is the function of grace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Notice again, we're being reaffirmed that the measure of grace toward you is not dependent on you, but dependent on him. It's not dependent on what you do and what you bring to the table, but of who God is and his unlimited love. See, here we're, we recognize that grace is not just how we enter into relationship with Christ, but how we function within his body. Grace is, is, the, is the very thing that allows the body of Christ to function effectively. You know, if one part of the body is hurting, the other parts of the body don't attack it. They compensate for it. Right? If you stub your toe, your knee doesn't go on strike to tell the toe that there's a problem. What's wrong with your toe? Stupid toe. You should have seen it coming. Didn't you learn your lesson last time? No, your body compensates, doesn't it? You might walk with a little bit of a limp. It might be a little bit uncomfortable, but your body doesn't stop functioning because one part of the body is hurt. And often we run into trouble because the church has become good at pointing out the flaws in other people rather than getting on with doing what it's called to do. Rather than allowing the church to walk around with a little bit of a limp from time to time, we just stop walking around and start yelling at people. And it doesn't work out so good. It doesn't work out great. See, the very gift that God gave us when Jesus ascended was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has these gifts. We call them gifts of the Spirit. These are things that God wants to pour out into your life to equip you and enable you to do the things that he's calling you to do. They're also a sign that you are the real deal. The gifts of the Spirit both are are, um, activators and indicators, okay? I could preach a whole message just on that, but anyway. But to activate... Now, think about what are the gifts of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness... Self-control, all sounds like grace to me. Like every single one of them requires grace. Every single one of them. There are no fruit of the Spirit that don't require grace as their centerpiece. As their, so, so for you and I to be, to be able to accomplish all that God has called us to do, we have to put on the Holy Spirit and indwell within the things that will manifest out of us, grace must be present. It can't not be present. And just like in the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, one of the metaphors in God's Word for the Holy Spirit is oil. The oil of anointing. And oil, the great thing about oil, it has a, has a lubrication property. It makes joints that are fused begin to move again. And I think that sometimes we need a little bit more grace within God's house toward one another to help loosen some seized up joints. A little more Holy Spirit to just free some things up in us so that we're less content looking toward one another, but rather focused on the purpose that God has called us to. We're a little less me, a little more they. See, the church is meant to be the ultimate manifestation of God's grace on the earth. We should just change everything and just call, that should be the motto for C3 LA. The ultimate manifestation of God's grace upon the earth. Coming to a city near you. Super corny. 
but so true. Like that's what we're called to be, the ultimate manifestation of God's grace upon the earth. But there are things that can so easily entrap us that stops us from being able to do that. One of those things is when the church unites around something other than Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one and two says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes in Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Notice here that there are two issues here. There's the encumbrance and sin. These are two separate things. They represent two different ideas. We, we easily identify that sin is destructive. But the problem is, is that there is something more problematic than destruction. It's distraction. See, sin destroys, and the destruction of sin leads to humiliation, and nobody wants to align themselves with humiliation. So humiliation repels. But distraction has a whole other other way of doing things. And that's why it's so much worse. Distraction is often, its impetus is pride and arrogance. It distracts. It creates a sense of self-reliance. And it's very attractive to people. But the Bible says, in the book of James, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Distraction gets us on the wrong course and takes people with it. Destruction is, ends with you. Now that's terrible for you. But distraction takes other people down a path and takes them off course as well. And that's why it's so much more destructive. The Bible describes the devil as as darkness, but also describes as an angel of light. A shadow, a type of, something plausible, a shadow of something. Seems right. Let's get on board with that. And before you know it, your eyes aren't fixed on Jesus anymore. They're fixed on some other agenda. Now, as good and real as those agendas may be, as noble as they may appear, they're not Jesus. It's just as simple as that. And anything that distracts us as his body from being 100% devoted to him and him alone is a problem and can be so divisive. And what I notice is that when our eyes aren't fixed on Jesus, the grace quota begins to go down. We become less gracious toward each other. We become less gracious toward people with differing opinions to us. We, we, the grace quote goes down and down and down because our pride and our arrogance goes up and up and up. The church is meant to be the ultimate manifestation of the grace of God. The other thing that can get in the way of this is when the church is overly concerned with individual uniqueness as opposed to being a body. I call it nail polish Christians. <laughs> nail polish Christians. You know, we just want to enhance just a little bit, little little flash, a little bling, little, hey, here I am. Looky here. Woo. Not saying, but you know. <laughs> I mean, we all desire to be acknowledged, don't we? But the problem is, is that, the problem is if, if you are in the pursuit of the acknowledgement, then honor isn't something that flows out of you. It's something that you're trying to attract to you. And the problem is, is that the byproduct of that is glorification. And you were never designed to contain glory. Never. And when we try as humans, it is 
bad. It's the greatest, glory is the most corruptive force on the earth for a human. Because as soon as we begin to become glorified, we begin to be cuffed up, we begin to become proud. We begin to feel like it's our right, maybe even our birthright. And the problem is, is that because it, it just corrupts us from the inside out. Why? It's because we're taking on, that's God's role. Our position, we're, to, we're designed to give glory, to give honor, to give praise. We're not designed to, do, out to, um, to put our life together in such a way that it attracts those things. You're designed to be the moon orbiting the earth. That when it gets in the right position, it glows in the sky. Not because it is a ball of fire, but because it's positioned correctly to allow the sun to illuminate the earth. That's what you do. And the good news is, you can be a dormant rock and it's okay. Because you're just a dormant rock getting in the right position. Can even change the tides. Don't be overly concerned about your uniqueness, your giftings. All that thing is just so temporal. Can I tell you that the things that I thought were so important to me in my 20s, I could barely even care less about now. The things that I would, I would swear to you that I would go to the mat on in my 30s, I'm not so sure about right now. Let me ask you a question. Is there anything over the last 10 years that you've changed your mind about? Anything. Anything. So what makes you think that in the next 10 years there isn't something else you're going to change your mind about? And yet how often can we draw these hard lines in the sand about these things that, that, are, that, that really can change? Now there's obviously things that never change. But I find that it's so easy to allow ourselves to, to go to town on things that just aren't that important. Even, even gifts that you might have. You know, I was in, in, in my, when I was a, in my late teens, early 20s, I was a professional musician. That's what I did for a living. I was one of the few people in Australia, Christian artists, that actually made a living doing it. And I would have sworn to you that I would be doing that for the rest of my life. But I distinctly remember the day. It was at a Youth Alive conference, these big youth events that we used to have in Australia. It was, it was this massive thing, and there was a, there was, it was like 20,000 people. I was on the stage, and I was playing in the band. And I looked out up, out the stage, and I suddenly realized I was 18 years old. And I looked out, and I, and I just felt this, this wave of nausea just came over me as I realized that the gigs were only going to get smaller from here. And when you're 18, and everything that you've put your heart, soul, and mind into, when you realize that it's only, it's only downhill from here, you better have yourself anchored to something other than your gifting. You better... Now, I'm not saying that your passions aren't important. I'm not saying the things you're into don't matter. They do, and it's great. Pursue them. But don't think that is who you are. Because honestly, God could really care less. He cares about the Great Commission. The gifting that you have is merely the context in which he, the Great Commission is to outwork in your life. So if you're an actor, God wants you to fulfill the Great Commission in that area. If you're a singer, God wants you to fulfill the Great Commission in that area. If you're an accountant, God wants you to... Well, I don't know what he wants with you, but anyway, if, if you're... A, whatever it is, whatever it is that you're doing, the Great Commission, it's the Great Commission. That's all that really matters. Your gifting is merely your context, and the context will change over time. So don't get overly consumed with that. Make a note to read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14 to 26. It's all about the body of Christ and how we're to meant to, the body of Christ is meant to interact together. I'll let you do that at home.
See, here's the thing. When the church functions as a grace-filled environment, it does two incredible things. Number one, it reflects God's values and glorifies him. And number two, it's attractive. You know, Jesus never had a problem drawing a crowd. And it wasn't the Christian crowd. It wasn't people that, you know, should have lined up with his kind of whole value system thing. I don't know if you noticed that the people that were the most attracted to Jesus were the people that had less, less in common with him in terms of his worldview. The tax collectors, aka thieves, the downtrodden, the lepers, outcast from society, the prostitutes, and the worst of all, the children. <laughs> Those little rugrats couldn't get enough of him. Always getting under his feet when he's trying to preach. How's a man meant to preach with the children down the thing? They were attracted to him. Why? It's because love and grace just oozed out of every pore of Jesus. It was who he is. Because everybody wants to be around a grace-filled environment. Everybody. Everybody. And that's why it's so important for you and I to align ourselves with his grace. To get the they on the inside of us. You know, grace isn't just about the me. It's not just about what it does for you. It's great that it does it for you. That's important. But that's not the end. There's the us. There's the partnership that God wants to build with you. That he wants to be in relationship with you. He just doesn't want to pay your ticket and say, I'll see you in heaven. Peace. No. He wants to partner with you. And not just to make your life great. To fulfill his plan and purpose on the earth. The they. That's why we need to align ourselves with his grace. And that's why it's so important that the church not only becomes a, an environment of grace, but it becomes the place on the earth where grace is poured out on the daily. You see, you can, you can find God's grace in the desert. You know, every now and again, the rain falls in the desert. But who knows that when you're in the desert and the rain falls and you're thirsty, you've got to contain whatever comes out. Like it's, like it's a limited supply. There's only so much of it. And that's what grace is. When you experience grace in isolation on your own, that's what it's like. It's like this limited commodity that's only so much of, and I could ruin it, I could drop it, I could spill it, and there won't be any more. It's going to be another two years before it comes again. When God's house is functioning as the grace-filled and fueled environment that God has designed it to be, it's like Niagara Falls in here, man. Where it is an outpouring of grace in every moment, in every situation, for the unbeliever and the believer alike. For that we are saturated, we are baptized, we are immersed in the grace of God in everything that we do. That's what God's house is meant to be. And that's what you and I are meant to carry into the earth. See, you're not designed to be desperate for grace. Grace abounds. It's not in limited supply. So it's not fickle. It's not going to disappear. It's robust. In the house of God, it should never be a limited commodity. In our teams, on a Sunday, grace should never be a limited commodity. In our neighborhood groups, grace should never be a limited commodity. 
in our worship services, grace should be overflowing and poured out. Whenever we declare the name of Jesus, grace should naturally abound. That's what we're called to do. Ephesians chapter 3, at the end of it, it says this scripture that is used so often. When, and I've, I've prayed this over my life so many times. But in studying this again over these last couple of weeks, I really realized really afresh what the context of what it's talking about is. And, it's, and I've discovered that it's way less about me and my life as it is about what God wants to do through my life. It's Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. The pretext to this was about the abundant love of God poured out over the saints in which we couldn't fathom because of the, the height and the, the depth and the, the length and the width of it was so immense that it couldn't even be described or contained. That is what the abundance that God is talking about. Far more abundant than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us. To Him be glorified where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. See, grace should move us. Grace should take us on a journey, a journey from me and my salvation to we, my partnership with God, to them, an outpouring of grace upon the earth through the church. God pours grace into the church. We overflow into one another. And then we overflow into the world. That's what we're called to do. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.